Hello and welcome to another episode of the RPG Academy Podcast. I am Michael, and I have brought along a special guest co-host, Tanner, from the Shadow of the Cabal, a Legend of the Five Rings actual play podcast, and proud member of the RPG Academy Network, along for the ride today. Tanner, how are you doing today, sir? I am doing lovely. It's a lovely Saturday night in the Midwest, and the weather is finally nice for a week, so I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I'm doing very well as well. Uh, now, th- you've been on the show before. We did a, a show and tell when you first joined the network all those many days ago. Two weeks, three, meh, maybe a little bit. Something, yeah, something like that. Something like that. Uh, but you've never been on a faculty meeting before. No, I am now officially faculty. I am awaiting <laughs> my tenure track. Well, keep waiting. <laughs> <laughs> we We haven't quite worked that out yet. We'll figure it out. Absolutely. So Tanner and I are here for faculty meeting episode 115, Collaborative World Building. Now, the reason that we gather for these faculty meetings is so that Tanner and I can talk about role-playing games, and we hope that through these conversations, we can share some of the experience that we have gleaned from our many years of playing tabletop RPGs. But we understand that the opinions we share and the advice we give may not work at every table every time. But there is one piece of advice that we feel is pretty universal. And Tanner, what is that one piece of advice? If you're having fun, you're doing it right. That is correct. So no matter what game you play, the system or edition, what rules you use, don't use, or misuse, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. Now, with that preamble out of the way, do we have any announcements going on today? We do have a few. Uh, the innies are still open for voting if I get this edited in time. Uh, hopefully this will come out this week and there'll be a couple days left. Um, again, RPG Academy is once again up for an innie. Uh, at this point, it's a fan vote. It's a popularity contest, so I'm not above begging. Please go vote for our show. Uh, there'll be links in the show notes, but it's basically any slash awards or any hyphen awards dot com slash vote slash 2017. And there's a whole bunch of things that you can vote for, not just podcasts, but really that's all the ones I care about. Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to mention again our our Patreon. I talked about this the last couple of shows. It's a pie-in-the-sky dream, but if we can get our Patreon donations up to $2,000 a month, I can quit my job and make this the RPG Academy a full-time gig, work on this in a catacon, uh, which would be crazy and exciting for me. Since we've done this sort of update, we've had a couple more patrons join on, and we'll talk about them later. So currently we're at 51 patrons and $263 a month. So just over like 11% of what I need to do to get there. Every journey starts with a single step. That is absolutely correct. A couple other quick notes. We do have a new RPG Academy Network subreddit. I probably should have written down what it was, but if you search for the RPG Academy Network, that's probably what it is. It's probably S slash that. Uh, I'll put the links in the show notes. So all the shows that Anything we're doing, anything we're producing, episodes, uh, whatever, you can go there and kind of join in and talk to us and hopefully upvote some things and make us feel good about what we're doing. Give us those internet points. Absolutely. And then lastly, a catacon. Uh, we are close to Gen Con, and once Gen Con is over, it is all downhill, or in some cases I may say uphill, to a catacon. We're going to go into full swing again, start working on that. Uh, we've had a few more vendors jump on board. We've had some new sponsors jump on board. Haven't sold any more tickets, though. That, that, that's the thing that's, that's driving me crazy and making me nervous. We have everything set up. 
except for people to come play games. Uh, Tanner, you're coming, right? I am. Uh, I plan on running a couple of events. I'm definitely going to show up and run some Legend of the Five Rings. And depending on what mood I'm feeling like in the next month or so, I think I'm either going to prepare a game of Knights Black Agents for some vampire Ooh. spy thrillers or maybe mix in some other like co-op board games and stuff in there. But if you like samurai, you like vampires, uh, hop on, show up, and you might you know, be able to let me run a game for you. That would be fantastic. Uh, I don't know if I will be able to to play in that game, but I would like to. And you know, j- let's just let's just put it out there. Jim McClure will be there, so we could have a Tanner versus Jim McClure game of reflections. We could, yeah. You know, wow, that, I that even... might be like a that might be a spectator. Event. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. I I'd probably <laughs> lose. Yeah. <laughs> Jim Jim's really good at killing samurai, so I'm not sure how. how I I haven't been I haven't picked up that skill yet, unfortunately. Very cool. And I will, I will just throw this out as a tease. Jim is actually coming over tomorrow morning, and he and I are recording the first of what will be a secret project between him and I that I think some people, yourself included, will be very excited about. Yes. And then uh, those, are, if you want to come to a Catacon, those tickets are available on Eventbrite. Just go to Eventbrite, search for a Catacon, or hit the links in the show notes. Uh, you can buy your badges. Kids' badges are free with an adult purchase. If you got a kid who really wants to come and play games and you don't want to play games, we'll give you a free badge just so that your kid can play. Uh, we want as many people as there as possible. Like I said, we have everything set up. We just got some empty chairs and we want to fill them. Definitely. Well, with all that, Tanner, do you have any uh, announcements this morning? Sure, yeah, I got uh, a couple. Um, Shadow of the Cabal is still running on schedule. We're weekly, we're about 30 episodes into our show, and we've just launched a Patreon for our show, speaking of Patreon. So if you head to patreon.com slash SOTCpod, you can check it out there. Uh, We've got a couple different levels that people can donate to us at, um, the highest being, you know, one-on-one chat sessions with me or the other guys on the show or GM advice or letting me run games for you. And then below that, uh, you get access to our private Discord chat, where we have about 20 people in there chatting it up all the time. And I'm actually accepting suggestions from people to uh, suggest NPCs to include in our game as Winter Court is approaching quickly in the land of Rokugan. And I need a cast of characters to round it out and harass my poor players. So if that sounds something like you might be interested in or sounds fun, just uh, head over to patreon.com slash SOTCpod. Fantastic. I will put that link in the show notes as well for you, sir. Thank you. So before we jump into our topics, uh, let's let everyone know how they can get a hold of us. You can find me on Twitter at the RPG Academy, and you can find my regular co-host Caleb at the Caleb G. And you can email the RPG Academy at the RPG Academy at gmail.com. And you can find me at Twitter on SOTC Pod. That's sort of the Shadow of the Cabal podcast Twitter. If uh, you're looking to get a hold of me, that is the best way to do it. Excellent. And now with all that out of the way, let's get into the show. So first up is our Gamers Lexicon. And this week, that is Collaborative World Building. So in most RPG games, there's a pretty clear line of distinction between the GM and the players on who has authority on not only the fiction, but the world building of of the session that you're playing in. You know, is there a town nearby? What's it called? What's over there in the distance? How does it connect to the plot? Or does it connect to the plot? And all of this and more usually would be in the purview of the DM and or the GM, and they would be in charge of sort of 
you know, laying down the law, deciding what the reality is outside of what the players do. But in a more collaborative game, the GM can definitely call upon the players to decide this either during the game, during a session zero, between sessions. There's a lot of different flexibility that you can do with collaborative world building. Now, that's going to tie directly into our general assembly, so we're just going to jump straight into that. So the reason I wanted to talk about this today is I was very recently somewhat of a spectator in a conversation on Twitter between Sly Flourish, uh, Michael Shea, who's very well known in the RPG Twitter sphere. He writes modules and adventures and has very successful Kickstarters, as well as Newbie DM, uh, another Twitter person that I follow. He, he, uh, he talks about a lot of different things, but when he talks about RPGs, it's usually very solid advice. And they were having a conversation that, I'm going to paraphrase, basically boiled down to nobody gives a about your world if you're the dm all the time that you spend building the world and the hours that i know i have put into trying to create this interesting world is a complete waste of time because most of it is never going to be experienced and that time could be better spent doing other things that will directly impact each session that the players are going to play now, that's the conversation they had, my, my paraphrasing. How do you feel about that, Tanner? I agree to a very small extent. I, I found a really good piece of advice once when it was talking about just GM prep in general, and world building does sort of fall under that, under that topic as well. And it's basically the advice boiled down to, if you find yourself preparing for something, ask yourself, is it necessary that I prepare this? If the answer is yes, go ahead. If the answer is no, ask yourself, are you having fun doing it? If the answer is yes, keep doing it. If the answer is no, you know, you, you should just drop it. Like if you're at the point where you're trying to figure out what every noble line in this kingdom is or where this river goes and it feels like homework to you, I agree, you should drop it. But at a certain point, the GM is a player at the table too and people who GM generally do so because they have an overflowing of creative ideas. And I think that if those people, you know, if you want to do some self-serving world building, so to speak, and even if it's not something that ends up being seen by players, I say go for it. Yeah, I, you know, that is almost word for word the way that I would have said it as well. That for me, the, the DM is a player. And again, I normally DM at my home games. And generally speaking, what happens is I just have a flash of insight or inspiration or, you know, I'm like the Eureka moment where I'm like, oh, I have this awesome idea for a world or a, for a setting or for a scene or for a plot. And that's what I want to build out on. So I've, I've got some excitement already built in. And if I come to the table and my players are like, yeah, we don't want to play that, you know, that's going to suck for me. And, I, and again, they can say that. They can say that we don't like your idea. But my opinion would be, well, then I will hold that idea and we'll either play a different game, or someone else will run the game, or we just won't play. But that idea is precious to me in a lot of ways, and that's the reason why I want to run it. And if you want to take that from me completely, then why would I want to run the game that I'm not going to have fun running? Definitely. And that comes down to sort of a uh, the, the, the purview of setting expectations for Session Zero. Before, when I was earlier on in my role-playing career, I would definitely do that. You know, I'd spend hours or months or weeks, you know, slaving away this world that I thought would be really cool. And hey, if only you could sit down and let me explain it to you for 30 minutes of how cool my world is. 
But now when we when we get something set up, that is part of our session zero, or not if not our session zero, that's a conversation that we, uh, the GM and the players have before we even get rolling on it. So we decide. So very recently, me and my group, who we play Shadow of the Cabal with, um, we decided to play an off-mic game of Savage Worlds on nights where we're not recording. And we were... Cool. Yeah, yeah. And we were trying to talk about, like, sort of what type of game we'd want to play. And we ended up deciding that we really wanted to do sort of a gunpowder fantasy. So sort of not quite Weird West, but, you know, like fantasy tropes mashed up with Western tropes. And we had to create a world for that. And so we kind of divvied up saying, you know, well, we started out by saying, Hey, we agree that there should be the old world and the new world. And this is the frontier. And we're all on board with that. And then we said, okay, well, we're going to have some different nationalities and things. So, Hey, Ryan, why don't you take this nation and develop it yourself? And you take this nation, Dakota and develop it yourself. And I'll do this one. And we set some ground rules on stuff that we definitely wanted to be present in the game and stuff that we didn't want to be present in the game. Um, we actually used Microscope, the world building system, mm. to get started on it. And one of the things that I said, for example, that I didn't want is if I'm playing an Old West game with Wild West tropes, I don't want there to be a fantasy race that's a stand in for Indians because that makes me feel gross. Gotcha. So we all said, okay, you know what? We all agree with that. That's something that we want to be absent from this world we're creating and then another player dakota you know he laid his things down so we set lines we set boundaries and then we sort of colored inwards from there we sort of colored within the lines so to speak so i think that's a really good way to get started on that and it kind of prevents the symptoms of coming into your idea or coming into your game with the idea that you have fully formed in your head and then sort of getting heartbroken when other players don't find it cool or interesting or doesn't don't find it like something that they can get their hands on and play with very well yeah and again that's almost exactly the way i would have laid it out as well now in, in my youth i absolutely was that dm is god because i didn't know any better and i would come to the world or come to the table with a world either fully fleshed or not but it was still 100 percent under my control and you know i've done the thing where i've said there are no magic users in my game because i've created a world where magic doesn't exist so you just cannot play a magic user and that's just the way the the game ran today i'm much more of a collaborative you know dm in general but I still have those lines. Like I could still say, "There's no magic in this game," but we're st- and we're gonna, you know, if I run it. That's the way we're gonna run it. No magic. But beyond those lines, like you said, I'm still very open to other people's ideas and working with them. But I've got an idea for a game in mind, and there's certain tenets of that that are not flexible. Uh, and I think the game is better for that. I like the flexibility of adding in other ideas and absolutely, but I still have to come to the table excited about an idea and I don't want to ruin that. Right. The, it, the whole, I mean, the key to this is collaboration. It's collaborative world building. You do have to have a focus or a scope for your game at a certain point though. We could roll up characters in Dungeons and Dragons and you could have a very different perception of what you think the world is even if we agree to do it collaboratively you have your set of expectations of what you think is reasonable versus what i do so if me and you are at the table you're the gm i'm the player you might say tanner what do you think is uh what what kind of people live in this town and i might say oh i think they're all uh giant purple talking cow people and that's might be an idea that's ridiculous or silly to you and so it's it's important to set not only 
what you think should be in the world and your scope, but also sort of the tone that you're going for, because collaboration doesn't work when people aren't working together for it. And if you're building elements that cancel somebody else's elements that they're trying to introduce, you know, it's the old improv of yes. And, you know, you've got to be able to not only agree with what they did, but then build on it rather than nullify it. Because then we just basically had an argument through a game and we got nowhere. And here we are. What are we doing with our lives? Yeah, I know we've we've talked about session zero so many times. It's now a joke that when we say it, you have to take a drink, which I'm going to do now. Okay, here we go. And also, yes, anding. It's absolutely those those things go together because they're so fundamentally important. I feel in the way that a good RPG works in, in, these days in my mind, where you need to have that session zero. You need to make sure everyone's on the same page. What the tone of the game is, what the feel of the game will be, so that you can then feel comfortable opening up that door because. If I say, Tanner, tell me something about this town, and you tell me something that just is ridiculous or just doesn't fit the tone of my the story so far, I don't want to say my story, this story, I either have to say no, which does not feel fun at the table, or I have to figure out how to make it work, which doesn't always work. Yeah, and it depends a lot on the game that you're playing, too. Certain games have the idea of collaborative world building sort of baked into their rules. Like, if you look at something like Dungeon World, it, you know, it's a game where you should ask questions and use the answers that your player give players give you. Um, what I run, Legend of the Five Rings, is a very restrictive setting. It's probably the most GM authoritative game I've played in a very long time. Once again, my players consented to that. They're cool with it. We're all sort of on the same board with it. But at the same time, I try to introduce elements like that as as much as I can. You know, if not like, hey, what do you think? Who, what clan owns the city? Well, that's a canonical fact in in the world, and there's not really much point in changing that but i might say hey what do you think this tea house looks like who do you think is here and that kind of goes into more uh sharing of the player collaborative storytelling which i think you know collaborative world building is just an extension of player narrative control and it it can be hard in certain games to do and many games like dungeons and dragons for example they offer no advice in those rule books on how to do that that's just a skill that you like you said, like you have to play some bad games sometimes to to figure out some of those lessons. While other games like Dungeon World, they get you out of the gate running with that and, and let you run wild with it. Yeah, and you know, obviously there are games that, like you said, are baked in. There's games that don't even have a GM, so everyone has equal footing. Uh, you know, whether that's all at the same time or if it kind of moves around the table, who's in who's in control. But I want to I want to focus it on games that aren't traditionally like that. D and D being the prime example. Mm-hmm. That So going back to what Mike and, and Newbie DM were saying, I want to think that they were sort of taking it to an extreme to, to make a point, because I know I have certainly done that before. But to a point, they are right. If I'm spending hours and hours and hours doing work that will never actually affect the game at the table, or that game is only going to last four sessions before it dies anyways, maybe that's because I spent all my time working up this history and this lineage that isn't relevant to the story that we're, we're talking at the table. So I, I definitely think there is, there's a give and take here of how much world building does, should the DM or GM do, but it needs to tie into the game. Like if we're going to start in a small fishing village, you know, on the shore of a, of a, of an ocean, then it's okay for me to spend some time figuring out that town or that village, why it's there, what its history is, what's in the ocean, how often do ships come so that the world feels real whatever that means in my game. 
Uh, I usually run games a lot. I, I say I run them like t- action TV shows. So basically everything relates to the plot. Like there's there's nothing where you're going to see a ship in the distance if that isn't important in some way because, you know, that's just the way the world works. Absolutely. But I'm totally okay with me making all of those decisions. And I'm okay with going to the table and being like, I don't know, you tell me, Tanner, why is this village here? What What is the, the rumors, the myth? Why, who settled this town? And, you know, going back, we did an episode, and I can't remember the number, it's been a while, uh, where I talked about putting a box on it. And that was our intro to, uh, in, in, basically into this sort of thing, like player narrative control is what it was called, where, like you said, I, I'm not going to ask you a question that's so open-ended that you can break the game. I'm going to ask you a question that, that has a limited scope, like, you know, who's the most important person in the town? You're probably not going to come up with something ridiculous there. I mean, certainly you can. You know I'm going to throw a samurai in there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, but you know, I'm going to ask you questions like, what's the first thing you notice when you come into town? Right. You know, what's the weather like today or whatever the case may be. But you ask questions that are limited enough in scope that you can't really, you're, you're, if you don't trust your players, they're not going to go out of bounds necessarily. But for this episode specifically, with all that kind of preamble out of the way, if you are going to go into a game like D&D that's not traditionally structured this way, but you want to make it structured this way, how would that look? And we've already touched on that a little bit. So let's start pre-game, going back to what you said before. So before the game even starts, where do you draw those lines or how do you talk to your players in a way that they understand what their role is in this collaborative building process. Sure. So what I like to do, and um, I, I kind of learned this lesson from looking at a couple different worlds that have been published, specifically the number one, we talked about this a little bit before the show, but Eberron, my favorite D&D setting of all time, is really good at this, which is I like to figure out what sort of the core conflicts of the world happen to be first. So what I like to do is I like to decide, okay, there's two factions here or these two factions and this third faction that's trying to move in i know what these three factions are or i talk with my players about what these three factions are we hash it out and that is the loose sort of structure of what's going on because if you create a world that is so densely packed that there's no room for adventures to happen what are you doing you know i i think that the world when you world build, you should be building it like you're setting up a stack of dominoes. You know, you you want to, and Eberron is a great example of this, where at least in the 3.5 version of the timeline, where the players start, they are basically right at the beginning of the powder keg of anything could pop off. There's so much going on there, but it's all stuff that drives adventures to happen. So that's where I start with first, like for our Savage Worlds game, like who are we going to be able to be playing here? What are our characters going to be doing? And then we kind of start backwards from there. Obviously we, in this case, we're like, okay, we want some wild West action. We want some horse rustling. We want train fights. You know, we want all those classic things. So what can we do to create a world that will make these situations happen? And that's sort of where I like to start. Okay. So I'll, I'll use the, uh, the dark discovery as kind of a roadmap here. Um, it's our Patreon only AP. We've had a few episodes, like we first started on the regular feed. I think it's, again, I'll try to sell it. I think it's a great game. I, I have so much fun running it that, uh, I wish more people would listen to it. So either join the Patreon or it's, eventually I may put it on the regular feed. Cause I just think it's so fun. It's Patreon only up to like, I think there's like four or five episodes that are on the main feed. 
and then the rest are our five dollar and up patrons only. And what Patreon is that on? Uh, Patreon slash the RPG Academy. Oh, okay, that one. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah that one. I didn't quite pick up what you were throwing down right away. Sorry. You thought I was just trash talking your game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I missed my cue there. I'm like, wait, what's he saying? Here? But I came to the table and I said, we're going to play in a world where there's this massive empire that's ran by the elves and the elves are a-holes. As they always are, 100% yes. of the time. So beyond that, they were able to make a lot of choices. And, and in the game itself... It is absolutely, I will ask them all kinds of questions like, you know, what's this person's name? What's going on here? And I just let them kind of run wild and I'll, I'll deal with it. But when we came to the table, I said, playing a game, elves rule it. They're a-holes. They've done some terrible thing. They, they ran the dwarves out of their mountains. And now the dwarves are seafarers. And they have these giant, like, almost like aircraft carrier sized cities that they drive around in. Halflings were all but extinct, blah, 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 blah. And those were my lines. But still within the session zero, when we were creating characters, other people got to make up new things, but I had to be there at the table to kind of say yes or no or or to guide them. Mm -hmm. And what I found, it's kind of interesting, and it's, it's difficult, actually. One of the things that was very, very important to this game is that there are no such thing as drow. The war that the elves won when they became these dominant forces was a multinational war against the drow, which in my game they're not called drow, but it's essentially the same thing. So the humans, the halflings, the elves, they all work together, this big war, and to a man, the the darklings, as I call them, are were wiped out. And there has not been one seen now in hundreds of years. So if someone said, hey, could I play a darkling or a drow? No, absolutely not. There is no, that no, you cannot do that. But that tells them something that, you know, there's a reason why. Right. You, at a certain point, you have to preserve the coolness of your idea. And you, that's sort of the balancing act that you have to do. I'm sure Bob at your table has a really cool idea for a drow character that he wants to play with two cool scimitars and a cool panther. Yeah. But at the end of the day, a core tenet of your world is that drow are not around. And you as a player have to trust the GM in that situation to say, you know what? Even though I really think I want to play a drow, if you have a cool idea or you have a it's a core part of your world that the drow aren't around, you kind of have to respect that decision and it's all about the give and take and that's that's another example of the yes anding, you know. And then from there you can say, "Yes, you're right. The drow aren't around." And how about I play a character who is convinced that he's seen a drow? Now that's a cool idea for a character, yeah. right? And like that's a way to sort of re reconvene your ideas and sort of make them gel with what the GM is trying to do with their world. Or even someone who thinks they are. Right. Like you're you're crazy, but you believe that. And that that's fine. And again, this is things we've touched on before, but in that regard specifically with, you know, a player wanting to play a certain type of character, the answer shouldn't be no. It should be why. Mm-hmm. Why do you want to play that particular type of character? What is it about that character that you find interesting that you want to explore? Can we find a different version of a character that will fit this story that still gives you those same feelings? And hopefully working together, you'll, you'll get there. Because, again, at the end of the day, I absolutely believe the DM should still have some hard lines. But then, like I said, it's almost like, you know, it's like the corners of a puzzle. I got the outside. I, got, I did the, the outside, the edges and the corners. But the middle, that's where everybody gets to play around a little bit. Because I know that you can't go outside of my borders. It's not going to break... The, the central mystery of my game 
centers around this elven empire and where did the drow go? Mm-hmm. If I allowed a character to break either of those, then that's not the same game. That's not to say it wouldn't be a fun game anyways, but that's not the game that I'm running. So I think that the, no matter it's collaborative still means everybody it's, it's together and there's still certain lines that I cannot let cross or I'm just not going to play that game. I'll play something else because I, I, I don't want to ruin this idea. I'll put it in my back pocket and I'll play it the next time. Right. And say, hey, now can we play this game with this? There's no drill. So I found a couple of specific strategies specifically for games like D&D for trying to actively sort of clue the players in um, and have them, even if they don't think that they want to, have them have a hand in the storytelling of the world and sort of what the world building is. So I'm kicking myself now that I didn't look it up, but there was a game that I saw online where it's a standard, it's an RPG, it's a standard sort of fantasy type thing, except if you're playing an elf, you decide... If you say, my elf is tall and he loves money, that is what all elves are now. And so every decision that you make about your character and their heritage defines the world going forward. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so it's a game where everyone has to play something different, obviously, because if if two players are both playing dwarves and they are radically different, you know. like, But that's right. the whole point of the game. And so with my last D&D campaign I ran, that's what I did. So I had one of my players, a longtime friend of mine, he, he is okay at character voices, but the only one he can really do is a good Russian accent. And he wanted to play a dwarf, like a military man. So... We talked a little bit and we we talked about sort of I had come up with the idea of the name of this nation that this dwarf would be from, but I sort of ran with what he was doing and I made these dwarves very inspired by Slavic and Russian influences. So the the dwarves were almost like Polish winged hussars. They were awesome cavalrymen and fighters and all that. And that's just because one stupid decision he made to run with his character with a Russian accent. So there's different ways that you can do that. And he, I wasn't consciously trying to do collaborative world building at that point. And he certainly wasn't consciously trying to influence what I was doing. But hey, you know what? He's from this place and he talks with a Russian accent. So of course they all talk with Russian accents, right. you know, for from where he's from. So that's a good way to sort of sneakily insert it in your game, even if your players are nervous or don't really know what to do when it comes to collaborative world building. So a quick side note, um, Michael, with the question mark at the end, who's only been on a couple episodes, but he's a big part of the faculty here. He does a lot of legwork, behind the scenes work for us. Um, he's really good at accents. A, a few. The ones he does, he's really, really good at. And he does a Russian accent. That's what we think of it. <laughs> at this last Origins, we played in a game together, and we decided that I was an adopted brother. He was a dwarf. I think I was an elf. And so he was doing his really good Russian accent, and I was doing my really crappy Russian accent. And we, we made it in the narrative. It's because I was adopted, and it wasn't my first language. So I was speaking in Elven when I was speaking in my crappy Russian or dwarf, whatever the case may be. Yeah, I've been banned from doing Russian accents at my current game because I played a uh, a character in Knights Black Agents who was a former Spetsnaz member, and he was just my accent was just so cartoonishly like Bond villain atrocious. It, uh, they put my group put the kibosh on that, and I'm not allowed to do the Russian accent anymore. Unfortunately, what's a Boris and Natasha would be my version of that. Yeah. So, so circling back around to, and this can be for any question that the players have, but specifically with players, I think the goal, and I didn't do this with Dark Discovery, I messed up, but I think the goal would be to say yes, not say no. So rather than going to the table and saying, hey, nobody can play a drow, because one, that says no, and two, they're all going to be like, why not? Clearly this is important to the story, so eventually the reveal is not going to be as good, is, is to say, 
here's all the classes or here's all the races that are available. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've made some tweaks, like the dwarves here again, they're seafarers, they're not miners, and these, you know, the halflings are actually like really evil. Like the halflings in my world, they will kill you <laughs> as much as look at you. They're not the happy go lucky farmers. And say these are the races that you can play and just not mention the ones that you can't, I think is a is a better option rather than saying no, you can't play like, you know, opening the one door rather than shutting a different one. Exactly. And it's a more, that's just sort of a, you know, that's almost like a business advice piece of advice of, you know, give someone their yeses. Don't give them their noes as, as, you know, I I am a firm believer that restrictions do breed creativity. And I, I don't think it's a bad idea at all as a GM to set guidelines and you shouldn't be afraid of saying, you know, like, Hey, you know what? Warforged, as cool as they are in Eberron, they're just not in my world. My world's not about magic robots. So, sorry, Jim, you can't play a a Warforged in my game. So, being able to do that and set your guidelines also kind of helps you focus because if you say yes to everything, eventually you're going to be left to the kitchen sink of ideas if you you go, let your players go too wild and then what's the focus of your game at that point? And again, and that's part of the reason why I feel so passionately about this is I do feel that that feeling of the game, the tone of the world, adds to the game. And if it's, and if it's a hodgepodge of everything, then it kind of loses something. And that's just the way I feel. Though I will mention that the thing with Warforge, because I love Warforge, because again I love Eberron. Me too. That's a Don't great. Worry. That's a yeah. That's a great example to say. Why did you want to play the Warforged? And and maybe through the conversation, you say, okay, well, you're going to play a human, but your soul was stolen by a demon, so you don't sleep. You know, you're basically like an automaton, but you're a soulless human, not a robot. Right. And honestly, that conversation can go two ways. If you ask your player, hey, why do you want to play a Warforged so bad? They might wow you with an idea that is way better than anything you had cooked up. And then you should say... Give me five minutes. Let me change a couple things about my world. But yes, the answer is yes. Like yeah. I, I have often found that pulling my players with that sort of thing, or even something so, like so innocuous as, "So hey guys, this session was fun. What do you think is going to happen next?" They throw ideas that are way better than what I have almost yeah. constantly. And like your your players are a huge untapped sort of brain trust of of potential that that you can call upon whenever you need to. And collaborative world building is one of the best ways to do that. Uh, This is what I wanted to move into next. So we've talked a lot about session zeros. Everyone comes to the table. The GM probably has an outline already, but you work with the players and you flesh things out. Maybe you set some rigid guidelines. Maybe you say yes because someone wows you. But then you move beyond that. And I think what happens next is between sessions, just like you were saying. So either at the end of a session, you ask them those questions like, you know, what do you think about tonight? You know, where do you think the story's going? Who do you think's actually the bad guy? And, you know, you ask three or four or five questions. Maybe you're only really interested in one, but you don't want to make it obvious that that's what you're asking. And then you get them to talk about it. Or, you know, maybe you send email recaps after the session. You know, this is what all happened. Uh, I want you guys to write back five things that you want to have happen or, you know, uh, three things that uh, you don't want to happen, whatever. So in between sessions, you can also mine them for resources that will help build the world and just take some of that stress off of your plate, you know, where you don't have to do all of it yourself. 
A hundred percent. And that's a, that's a great way to think about it is, you know, you're not playing the game probably more often than you're playing it. And that's just sort of your idle time to, you know, pull your players, get ideas, whether that's through email or text message or Facebook group, however you guys keep in touch. Lord knows I do it all the time. Like even, I mean, I play my game right now for recording. So my priorities are a little bit different, but I'm always asking my players like, Hey, what locations do you think would be cool to feature in this story? What, type of scenes do you want to have so at least i mean the art of gming is really the art of putting down the railroad tracks in front of you as your train's rolling and that should apply to world building as well you know if you're a new gm you're just starting out just make that fishing village don't worry about what the king is doing three continents over focus on what you're doing now and then pull your players see what they're interested in and if you're overwhelmed by world building as many people are don't be afraid to just take it one step at a time and you know you don't have to shoot over your scope if it doesn't matter what the king of australia's name <laughs> name is in your game don't worry about it if you f- have fun making that stuff up just go for it but otherwise you know i would say don't sweat it if it if it's not important to what is going to happen at the table yeah, absolutely agree with that. I, I think the key for me and, and the way that I try to run my games these days where I want to make everything, you know, against an action TV show. If I start out the game thinking, hey, there's this evil elven empire and my players are going to have a whole lot of fun just, you know, staying under the radar. They're not necessarily good guys. They're not necessarily bad guys. But, you know, the empire is not really it's just sort of a, a faceless pressure that i can use whenever they're trying to do something that oh no the elves are showing up you have to whatever and they're like no f this we're going to get to the bottom of this we're going to find out what's going on we're going to fight them head on that's a different game than what i was expecting and, and i'm by asking those questions like what do you want to happen next and they're like we want to confront the mayor okay well you're telling me that's what you want and as a dm as an author as well I need to give you what you want, but maybe not in the way you were expecting it, you know, so it's not too obvious. Mm-hmm. But that tells me what you're interested in. So I'm not going to spend all this time and effort and energy crafting a game that you don't want to play in. Right. And it gives you ideas as well when you pull your players as to what sort of set pieces and scenes they want to happen. Like, I remember when I would uh, when I was running my Star Wars Edge of the Empire game. There are so many planets in Star Wars that don't have a wiki entry, and it's so much fun and so easy to just go around your players and say, hey, you're on planet Thrandar for this session. What do you think is the primary climate of this planet? Because there's only one. It's Star Wars. Come on. Yes. What's the primary environment? What are the aliens here like? What's their number one activity? Go. That's like a session in itself. And certain games like Star Wars, I think you can get away with that a little bit more because the dice do the heavy lifting of the storytelling and you there's a mechanic for being able to define things about the world built into the game but i would urge people to not be afraid to do that in other games like it just because it doesn't say that you can do that in the dungeon master's guide of D fifth edition don't be afraid to try it but i would always urge people if you're going to ask players questions use the answers If someone gives you a really cool, passionate idea about this cool volcanic island that might be out here that's about to erupt and explode in doom, don't say, okay, cool, now we're never going to play with that. You know, like, your player has an interest in it, they've invested, so make sure that you can return that investment to them and get some satisfaction out of it. So, before the game starts, session zero, between sessions, I I think that... I think it's important to ask directed questions. I also think it's important to ask open-ended questions and then just, just reading your table. You know, if you're doing a scene that's 
you know, a really heavy role play scene involving the dignitary of two different countries and nobody seems to care. They're just trying to find a way to start a fight. That tells you a lot in the moment, but in between sessions, you know, you can pull your players, ask some questions, leading or otherwise. And then sort of the third version, which we've also touched on already, is in the moment, in the game, give me information, whatever you say becomes true. Understanding that that's a powerful ability that you're given to players who may not be used to that. Some of them don't want it. I know I have talked to players before who who do not, absolutely do not want to play in a game that information doesn't come from me because mm-hmm. it feels like it, it ruins that simulationist part of their brain where they, they want to think that I've decided all this, it's all written out, and they're going to find the mystery because they found the right clues, not that I'm just making crap up in front of them. But if you don't have that type of player saying, hey, Sarah, what do you think's interesting about this village? Can be like a very powerful motion, a moment for Sarah to be like, oh, I can make up anything I want. This is awesome. And hopefully it's not tall purple cow people. You know, maybe it's something that there's like this, you know, a, there's a curse on the town or, you know, every generation a witch is born here. So who knows? But it can be very cool to see them go, oh, wow, I can do this. And it's it's sort of like GM training. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. hey, this is what you get to do all the time if you sit on this side of the screen. Mm-hmm. And I, I think like going back to Star Wars a little bit, I think that that's a great system to get people started in that. Being able to say, hey, you rolled three advantages on this. What is something about this room even that you want to define like getting people just baby steps into being able to take narrative control of the game makes it so that eventually you might not even have to ask your players you you can say okay you guys head over the hills and over the mountains here and getting to the next town and then your players one of your player alex might say hey you know what i think that it'd be cool if there was like a an old graveyard here and we can explore that a little bit you say yeah hell yeah go for it and like that's its own type of story and getting people to sort of like you said break out of their shells a little bit if they're not quite comfortable with that that's sort of a hurdle that can be that can be conquered and you know what some people never want to and that is totally fine and if people want to play the the fly on the wall the simulationist type game if they're having fun they're doing it right absolutely and you know sort of the the last big secret that I'll share and I'm sure I've shared the same one before uh, this came from one of the writers groups I used to be in because if you didn't know I, I wanted to be a writer that whatever you write is what happens. Yes. And that's and sometimes you have to think about that, but it's it's true. Whatever if you're the author, whatever you write happens happens, whether it's smart or stupid or coincidental or whatever. If I say there's an eclipse, there's an eclipse. That's because I wrote it. That's it's it's true. The same thing goes for the GM. No matter how much power I give my players, at the end of the day the GM still has the authority whether you want to lay the hammer down or just sort of manipulate things to still make it go where you want it to go and make it happen the way you want it to happen. Like I want my players involved, but I can manipulate things by what I ask them or the way I describe things to push them in the direction I want them to go. So even if you, you fear letting that control go, you're really not. Right. And on the flip side of that, I will also add sort of the other side of that writing advice that you gave when it comes to role-playing games. My view is that if it does not happen at the table, it is not canon. If I describe the far-off land of Alflandia and the players never hear about it and they never go there and they never meet anyone from there, it's not real. It's not real in the shared fiction of the game. It's a cool fan fiction idea that you have in your brain, but until it comes out of somebody's mouth or uh, is spoken or referenced at the table, consider it 
to not be real. And that is a really good way to avoid DM heartache when you have this cool idea. Like, like if, for example, with your Dark Discovery game, if you just never mentioned the drow and like you just your players are going into the game that are just saying, huh, there just must not be drow in this world. But in the back of your mind, you, you say, I have a cool idea of why the drow aren't in this world. Once the players, it's going to lead to hard feelings if the players step on your toes about that. So you have to establish early, there were drow in this world, there aren't any more. Now that you've set it at the table, it is quote unquote canonical, it's set in stone, that happened. And now that that happened, the players shouldn't be able to mess with that. Thank you very much, Shannon. We were usually with with Caleb. We argue, but you and I seem to agree with almost everything. Yeah, we should we should have argued more about something. <laughs> I, yeah, we, we maybe we should have screened this and see what our thoughts are beforehand. Yeah, yeah. it's fine. Yeah. It's, it's good, fine. It's good to agree with people once in a while. Uh, yeah, it just makes me feel like we're, I'm right. Um, <laughs> so as always, uh, we'll throw this out to the audience. Please let us know uh, your thoughts, your experiences, your advice when it comes to collaborative world building. When have you done it that it worked well? When have you done it that it crashed and burned maybe it destroyed a campaign please share that with us on twitter through email on the comments to this uh, episode and uh, you know we might get back around and retouch on this topic using some of the advice or some of the examples that you gave us yeah and just tweet me about your world i just love hearing about people's worlds so just go to at sotc pod and boil down your world in one sentence and 144 characters i'll read it i'll comment on it i love hearing about people's worlds so, you know, I'm sure you have a lot of free time. Um, remind me and I'll actually give you access to those uh, Dark Discover episodes. Nice. Because they're really good. Yeah, I want to. I want to listen. All right. So now for the last segment, uh, we're going to do our new student introductions. This is where we take a class and a background from the fifth edition of D&D and we mush them together and we see what sort of interesting combinations we can come up with. And for today's new student, we have a barbarian entertainer. Huh. This one's, a, this one's a little tricky at first blush. Um, the idea that comes most immediately to mind would be a sort of tribal storyteller type character or um, almost like tribal theater or dancer type character. The, the person who's part of this this group who lives outside of the realm of quote-unquote civilization, but they still have a way to keep their oral history. They have a way to express their culture through dance, art, storytelling, and I think that that would be a really cool sort of combination for that. You know, again, we we say this every time. I apologize. I know it's rep- repetitive, but you always have the option of just saying the background was the background. So you were an entertainer, but now you're the barbarian class, and that's how you interact with the world. So you could have something where you were an entertainer, and you went into like a, maybe like a lost civilization or like an un, an undeveloped part of the world as an entertainer, maybe you're part of a circus, and then something happened and you got separated from the party or you were kidnapped or whatever, and you were adopted into the tribe. And so even though you used to be a bard or a singer or whatever, you've now lived 10 years in this weird culture, you've adopted that culture, and now you're out in the world adventuring, and they're kind of separate things. It's almost like Tarzan, if Tarzan was like 15 when he get, fell out of the plane. Yeah, I really now I really want to play a character who fell off the back of the minstrel wagon and bumped his head and was raised by wolves. <laughs> <laughs> and song only comes to him every once in a while. Yeah, like just stuff like that. It's such, it's such an awesome idea to just sort of take things like, if you sat me down and were like, Tanner, create a character, I would never choose Barbarian an entertainer but there's sort of a nugget of a story in that combination whatever one you choose yeah and i like what you said to begin with that there are 
elements of and again i actually i hate the barbarian as a class anyways i think it's it's dumb uh, we're, a, we're gonna have to disagree about this then because uh, i just think it, it's that's more of a cultural thing like a barbarian like i may think you're a barbarian but you could be very sophisticated it's like an it's an opinion uh you know like from braveheart they thought uh william wallace was a barbarian even though he knew multiple languages and was a you know a strate- uh, strategic uh, war general but the french thought he was a moron but within the barbarian culture, you could have, again, a potter, a weaver, a storyteller. I, I, lo- I really love the storytelling uh, aspect that that is an entertainer within their culture. But when they travel into the world, you know, they may not be selling out the inn like the bard does, but they're still an entertainer to their people. And they have something of value to pass along, no matter what, what sort of source they're taking it from. Absolutely. You could have fire dancer. Think of like a Samoan culture, mm-hmm. uh, uh, fire breather, circus stuff, you know, the strong man, bearded lady, what, you, you know. What about like an animal trainer? Like someone who, you know, like, hey, I'm, you could be the guy who walks into the woods with three monkeys on your arm and a pet leopard and, you know, charge the townsfolk of Mulberry Village to pet your tiger, you know? Like that's an entertainer. You're a showman. You're trying to sell yourself with you know, what that background is for you, which is someone who has lived outside the confines of civilization. I think that works. I always like to play characters that are suboptimal, not even not even min-max, but like suboptimal. <laughs> you know, you could play a barbarian who wants to be a dancer or who wants to be a singer, you know, so they, they try so hard, but they're just not good at it. You're going to make me cry here, dude. <laughs> I played a... When 5e first came out, I, I think it was in a one-shot game, I was playing a, a half-orc bard mm-hmm. who was a comedian. People always laughed at his jokes because if they didn't, he would kill them. <laughs> so he thought he was hilarious. He would tell the most awful jokes and everyone always laughed. What if you're a barbarian who has found his way into the fantasy version of a pro wrestling circuit and now <laughs> you have to play the barbarian character? Like, you know, you might be the guy who, you know, when you're in civilization, you wear pants. But when you're in the ring, they make you put on the tribal <laughs> gear. They play you up and your job is to rile up the crowd and, you know, to boo you as, a, as an outcast of civilization. Yeah, like um, Iron Sheik or yeah. George the Animal Steel. Yes. <laughs> so now we're now we're veering into Dungeon Dome territory. Yeah, yeah. I mean, any chance I get to talk about the Iron Sheik, I'll do it. So. <laughs> um. So what else? What are some other ideas? So I got a barbarian. Uh, you know, other types of entertainer. Just looking at the five E book. Um, what about? What about? This might be kind of stepping on the the bard's toes a little bit too too much but what if you were like the the equivalent of like a viking scald like your job is to be in the fight so you are the guy who can record what happened and it's almost more of a historian orator type but you're not afraid to get your hands dirty no yeah i think that works very well uh some of the options they give you in the book again you could be an actor a dancer a fire eater jester juggler um musician poet singer storyteller or tumbler uh, we touched on some of those, like a poet. You know, you could have a, a barbarian who's just very soulful. And, you know, they may not be something that would, you know, fill a stadium, but they write these very uh, melodic poems about the, you know, the difference between nature and society. And, you know, maybe they, they just leave them somewhere. And it's almost like over time, there's like this legend that grows. It's, you know, like the Banksy version of a poet. Uh, <laughs> no one knows who this person is or where they are or where they came from. And you'd never but, expect the barbarian. And you know, Exactly. You never expect the barbarian. 
So there is a variant also in the book of uh, a gladiator. Yeah. So you can be, it's kind of almost touches on what you're talking about the world wrestling, but you, you're a fighter who just the, the way that you fight is not just kill them as quickly as possible, but to make a show of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. I like the idea too, of um, kind of taking this back to my wheelhouse, which is legend of the five rings. There is sort of a, barbaric clan in the l5r which is the crab clan i believe was it you who played a, a crab clan in in the i was a crab but i was raised and taught by the um the spider right the spider yeah okay well the crab are normally known for being very uncouth but they do have a storied tradition which is every winter court they make people draw rolls out of a hat and put on an improvised play and so i <laughs> i kind of like the idea of this barbarian playwright who kind of force you know he has a love for drama and theater and he forces his buddies you know force <laughs> by force forces them yes yeah tell the story that my grandma told me when i was three years old i want to hear it again <laughs> or yes. else or yeah and again i can see that where like the roles don't make sense you know absolutely <laughs> yeah it's like why why am i being this person like i'm tall and the the, the role is clearly for like a, a gnome or shut something. up or grog smash <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah all right so any other thoughts you can think of tanner from a barbarian entertainer that those are the ones that came to me the quickest i'm sure there's more out there and if you have ideas for them you know send them our way let us let us look them over and we'll we'll rate all of them on a scale of one to ten <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, So before we wrap up things for tonight, uh, we did have some new uh, patrons that have joined us. Again, I know I've been harping on that a lot, but there are people that come to the patreon.com site and donate a monthly donation. If every listener who listens to our show now gave just $1 a month, which which, would be fair for most of you, you wouldn't even notice that, we would already hit our goal. I would already be at $2,000 a month because we have over 2,000 regular listeners. So again, Consider it, dollar a month. But we've had four new uh, patrons, as we like to call them, our Academaniacs, since our last time we've got together. And so I want to say a big thank you to Michael, no last name, Adam Waite, Satan's Toast. Big fan. Yep. So is that like a piece of toast that instead of having Jesus on it, it has Satan on it? I think it's just a piece of bread that Satan touched and burst into flames. Could be that as well. And then our newest is Justin uh, Coster. He did join at the $5 level, so he's digging into the Dark Discovery episodes as we speak. Hopefully uh, he enjoys them and he can uh, encourage some other people to jump on. Because if we get everybody at $1, I'm set. If we get everybody at 5 I'm rolling. <laughs> <laughs> we also had one new review since last time. Uh, would you mind, uh, Tanner, reading that review for us? Sure. I'm going to give this person a voice, even though... Uh... I don't know if this is this person's voice, but I'm going to give him one. Sure. Chipperish Wink says, Great shows. Fun to listen to. And I always feel like I learned something new. (laughs) Excellent. On both parts. (laughs) Uh, That puts us up to 103 reviews on iTunes, which is amazing. It's awesome. Uh, But it's not as awesome as 104. So whoever else out there would like to throw us a review. If you listen to us on Google Play, you can't leave reviews there. There's always Stitcher. You can leave a review on Stitcher, even if you don't listen to us there. Uh, And then lastly, I just wanted to quickly mention just a couple days ago, back to back, I got two amazing emails from listeners of the show. Just, you know, just decided to write in, shared some of their story about gaming when they got in, when they got out, what's going on, the hardships they're having to keeping games together. Uh, And I just wanted to say thank you to David and to Jay for taking the time to write in those in. I 
I absolutely sincerely appreciate that. Don't ever think that sending me an email or any podcaster is like time waster or like, you know, you're bothering us. We crave those sorts of things. So absolutely. Thank you to those two. And, you know, free reign. Anyone else out there, if you want to just talk about your game, ask questions, whatever, don't hesitate to send us an email uh, and let us know that you're listening because it means a lot. Absolutely. And I, I'm in the same boat. I During tough times in my life or times even that I wasn't able to game regularly, actual play podcast discussions, that sort of filled the void in my heart as well. And it was able to sort of keep me interested in the hobby when I would have fallen out of it many times. So I'm totally with you, David and Jay. Fantastic. Tanner, thank you so much for joining me tonight. I appreciate your insights because we mostly, mostly agreed. So I know that you're a very smart and capable GM. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so as always, anyone listening, you know, kind of a last call, we'll throw it to you. Please let us know your thoughts on the Barbarian Entertainer. Let us know your thoughts on collaborative world building or just anything in general. Let us know. Mm-hmm. So with that, we will wrap the show up. And this has been Michael. And this has been Tanner. And we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast, the flagship program of the RPG Academy network. If you enjoy what we do here, then please check out the RPGacademy.com and visit our site partners for additional entertainment and gaming advice. We do this out of love for the hobby and for you, our fans. The podcast and site content will always be free for you to enjoy and utilize. But we do have expenses related to the show. If you'd like to help out in any way, please visit patreon.com slash vrpgacademy and check out the rewards we are providing for your monthly pledges. We use all funds that come in to improve the show and give you better content and quality. And if you don't have the coin to spend, don't worry. You can still help us out in many ways. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes and or Stitcher Radio. You can leave us a five-star review. Also, if you clear your cookies and you visit Amazon or the drive-thru RPG site through our portal, we get a small percentage of what you pay, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Just like any RPG, our site works best with open lines of communication. We love talking with our listeners about everything. Please contact us with any questions, concerns, and comments that you have. We also love to hear feedback and experiences from your own games. You can email us via podcast at vrpgacademy.com and reach us on social media, such as Facebook and Google Plus at vrpgacademy. But Twitter is usually the fastest way to reach us. You can find my favorite co-host, the Caleb G, at the Caleb G. And you can find my favorite co-host, Michael, at the RPG Academy. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you're having fun, you're doing it right.